Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 16. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Berlachiroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is God's word. Well, as far as, as, far as raw graphic content, I don't think Hollywood has anything on the book of Genesis. Here is another example of Abram and Sarai taking one step forward in their faith and then another two steps back as they're learning to walk with this God who has called them to a new identity and to a new life. Have you ever noticed, as we start to look at uh, the disturbing things that happen in Genesis chapter, recorded in Genesis 16, have you ever noticed in your own experience maybe even in your own life, that in many dysfunctional settings, there's, there's a combination of abusers and victims and enablers. I'll explain what I mean by that. The abuser is always in control. Uh, the victim is helpless. Uh, not always purely innocent, but helpless and defenseless. And, and the enabler is unreliable. Um, the enabler can't help, or the the enabler won't help 
or, or doesn't even doesn't see what's going on or sees and, and doesn't know what to do. Abusers inflict harm, victims receive the harm, and enablers let it happen. And you see this dynamic here in Genesis chapter 16. Sarai, interestingly enough, Sarai is the abuser. God had promised a child to her. She is getting really old. Uh, she, I mean, her biological clock has stopped ticking. But God's promised a child to her. And so she becomes impatient and she decides to be manipulative. She manipulates her husband. And then when she doesn't get what she wants, she abuses her servant, this young girl, this young, probably a teenager, this girl from Egypt. Maybe they, maybe they brought Hagar into their affairs and into their household uh, when they were spending time gathering wealth in Egypt years before. But Hagar is the victim. She's a foreigner. She's a servant. She has no rights. She's young. And now she's impregnated. She was used. Now notice in verse 4, we're told that Hagar wasn't innocent, wasn't purely innocent. It says in verse 4 that once she was pregnant, she looked at Sarai, and it says she looked with contempt upon her mistress. And what that meant in the old Hebrew was she got cocky. She looked, at, she looked at her boss, who is barren, and, and that in their culture would have been a sign of shame for a woman advanced in years to be barren and no children of her own. And she looked at her boss, who was not pregnant. She looked at her own pregnant self, and she got cocky. And she looked down upon her mistress. Regardless of whether she had any culpability or not, she's still a victim. She's still helpless. She's still defenseless. And then you have Abram, and Abram was the enabler. You know, later, hundreds of years later, the Mosaic Law would insist that anyone, anyone who owned servants, or anyone that employed servants, had to treat them with justice, had to be merciful and kind. Abram was the only person in Hagar's life that had the power to do something. And he didn't. He said to his wife, look, she's your, she's, she's your employee. She's your servant. She's in your hands. You don't like the way she's treating you? You don't like the way she's acting? The way she's looking at you? Fine, do what you want with her. So the only one that could have defended the young girl decided not to. But being manipulated, he neglected to see her need. Now, Maybe you're wondering, how could something like this happen? How could seemingly good people like Abram and Sarai, right, people who are learning to walk by faith, this is a guy who rescues his son Lot, who is, who is exhibiting amazing faith, his ability to trust the words of God, to protect him and to provide an heir for him, to make him a great nation and to bless all peoples through him and his family and their one descendant. How can something like this happen at the hands of such a couple? Maybe you're, maybe you're wondering, well, why have things like this happened to me? Or maybe people who are close to me. You know, according to the statistics, one in every four American women claim some type of physical violence by somebody who is very close to them. So statistically speaking, you're in the room or 
statistically speaking, you know somebody very close to you who has suffered and, like Hagar, been victimized. And my hope today, as you listen to this story and and look at Abram and Sarai and their idolatry, and when you look at this young girl and how she was used, I, I hope you will see that if you are struggling and if you are hurting and if you feel like a victim, God sees you. And I want to talk to you today about what God sees when he looks at hurting, victimized people, what we should see, and what Jesus sees. What God sees, what we see, and what Jesus sees when he looks at hurting, victimized, oppressed people. Now, here's what God sees. He sees them. He sees them. He doesn't just think about demographics and statistics and cultural problems, although he's aware of everything. God sees them. It's far more personal. And we see this in verse 8. The angel of the Lord uh, meets her. She's in the desert. So here's a young, pregnant teenager. Uh, she, she's, she's being so abused that she flees. She decides it would be better to risk it pregnant in the desert. She's an Egyptian. And the angel of the Lord finds her on the road to shore. That's, that's like Egypt. She's going home by herself in the desert, pregnant, young. So she obviously thinks it would be better to risk her own death than to stick it out. And the angel of the Lord meets her in the wilderness when she's all alone. And he says to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Now scholars, most scholars agree, and I believe it's true, this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. This is not just an angel. This is the living God who meets her where she's at and says, Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? This is the only known instance in ancient Middle Eastern literature where a divinity addresses a woman by her name. It's also the first biblical instance of God or an angel uh, appearing to someone with the news of a birth. And this 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 is a slave girl. She's not even part of God's covenant with Abram. But God sees her. Not just the problem, he sees her. And isn't that what Hagar finds out, uh, decides to say? In verse 13, her response is, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. Or some English translations just say, she called him, you are the God who sees me. For she said, truly here I have seen him. Who looks after me. This is the only instance in all of the Old Testament where a human being ascribes to God a name. Right? God names us. Uh, Adam names the animals. Here, a human being gives God a name. And it's a slave. And it's a Gentile. And it's a woman. The Bible's God is not sexist. And we discover in this account with Hagar, what Peter thousands of years later would discover, recorded in Acts chapter 10, God shows no partiality. Uh, now, does it, does it bother you that God told this girl to go back? Isn't that kind of disturbing? Right? He, he, says, he says, go back. 
and submit to your mistress. That is really hard to hear. But honestly, the alternative would be to die in the desert, her and her baby. You know, sometimes, uh, sometimes God doesn't provide an escape from what we're enduring. Sometimes he provides what we need to endure it. And in this instance, what he gives this girl is hope. He tells her, I see you. And he tells her, you have a future. And your child has a future. And it's interesting. She says to her child, it's almost like the promise somehow is still going to be fulfilled through this mess of a situation because he says to her, you're going to have a son and you're going to call him Ishmael, which means God hears. God hears your cry and he's going to become a great nation also. But God doesn't go all the way because this is Abram and Sarai's concocted idea of how they're going to have kids. It was culturally acceptable at the time to do this sort of thing. Nonetheless, they decided to take matters into their own hands. We're going to make God's promise happen. And so this is what they do. And this girl's abused. And God says, look, you have a future. Your child has a future. Your child's going to be the father of another great nation. But God doesn't go all the way because he doesn't say that the world is going to be blessed through this child. And the world wasn't blessed through Ishmael. Actually, if you keep reading the story of this family and the generations that come later, this son and the rest of Abram's descendants would have conflict for centuries. All because this couple decided to take matters into their own hands. Sometimes, sometimes God doesn't provide a means of escape. Sometimes he gives us what we need to endure. And for Hagar, it's hope, and it's a future. Now, if you're wrestling with the idea that she, he told her to go back into the same situation, I know. But she's not going back the same, is she? She's not going back alone. And that's the point. And that's why she can go back. is because God says to her, hey, I see you. I hear you. You're not going back alone. I'm with you. How many times have you endured a difficult situation, a difficult system, a broken system, a broken uh, dynamic, whether it's in a home or where you work or in your community? How many times have you endured something because you knew that somebody there, that somebody present really was looking out for you? Sarah go, uh, Hagar goes back knowing that God sees her. Randy Neighbors uh, said that one of the biggest problems with poor people is identity. But when poor people see, that God, when poor people recognize that God sees them, they're no longer poor. And I want to I I adapt that to what we're dealing with here with this young girl. An oppressed, victimized person has an issue with identity, but if that person knows that the God of the universe sees them, the circumstances have changed. That's the beginning of hope. That's the beginning of transformation to know that God sees me, that God hears me. So he sees the weak, the God of the Bible sees the victimized and the marginalized. He takes their pain very seriously. Now, how should this perspective inform our response? We all know hurting people. To some hurting people, we're very close. To others, we just kind of, like Dejan mentioned with the Samaritan parable, 
the Good Samaritan parable, we just kind of see them on our periphery. And, and we're, we have to wrestle with, how do I respond? How do I respond to this person in my life who is really hurting? What should we see? What should the church see? What should the community of faith see? What should you see when you, when you know somebody is hurting on your campus, on the floor where you live and where you sleep, or somebody in your own household, maybe one of your children? What do you do when you see it? Well, I want to suggest that the Christian has an opportunity to search, to look with eyes of faith, to look for opportunities to let people know that God sees them. Uh, Yes, by word, but also by actions. By the systems we set up as a church, uh, for the habits you cultivate as individuals and as families, in word and in deed, Look for opportunities to say to people and to exhibit and exemplify to people, hey, God sees you. God hears you. Raising awareness about abuse and victimization across the planet and right in our own culture, it's very important. But the Christian and the church has a unique opportunity to raise awareness of the fact that the creator sees injustice. That the creator sees somebody when they're hurting. So we have a unique opportunity as God's people to raise awareness of his perspective. At our last church, uh, we developed a ministry called Women's Advocates. Uh, We would vet and train and commission uh, women who loved Jesus, uh, who were wise, who had a good reputation in the congregation and in the community to come alongside the leaders who in our denomination happened to be all men, to come alongside of us and assist us in ministering to hurting women. Um, ladies, those of you who are married, you know, what, you know what your husbands are like, right? We spend our lives trying to understand you. All right, now, 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 put ten of us in the same room together and have a hurting woman come in. Good luck trying to understand what she is saying. Okay, And so we discovered that we really needed help. We would try and help a hurting woman, and, and we'd somehow find out later that we totally missed it. We, there was miscommunication. There was missed body language. We, we didn't understand what was being said, even though we were trying uh, to help. And so we decided, hey, we're going to recruit uh, godly women uh, who are going to assist us in responding to hurting people when they're in need. And it made a difference. It made a big difference. Actually, as we continue to get established as a church, one of my personal goals as as your pastor is to develop women's advocacy right here among us. Hurting people need more than handouts. Hurting people need patient coaching. They need to be loved. They need to know that you're not going to give up on them when they distrust you or when they fail you. They need loving patience so that they can develop the faith to endure what they're dealing with and the skills to eventually overcome it. And so the church in the world is in a unique position, and if you're a Christian, you're in a unique position to let people know, hey, I see you in your distress. There is no way anybody is going to trust the God of the Bible if they don't believe that you see them if they don't trust that you are there with them, that you hear them and see them. 
There's a passage of scripture in Isaiah chapter 32 uh, that is encouraging to me. Because Isaiah gives us, he gave the ancient Hebrews a glimpse of a coming Messiah, of a coming king, and of leaders who would lead in his name with his authority. And Isaiah said this, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. One of the things I said to your elder and deacon candidates uh, on the first night that we met for, for the training was, if you're a godly leader, if you're a healthy leader in a church, there are hurting people who for the first time may be able to trust somebody by your leadership. What I've said to these guys is you may be the first person who is a redemptive example of a godly leader. You may be the first person in someone's life that they look at and say, that is somebody I can trust. That is somebody whose protection I can hide under. And those who represent Jesus Christ and the God of the Bible by his grace, this is what he's molding you into. Uh, Princes who will rule Injustice, who will be like hiding places from the wind, shelters from the storms, like streams in a dry and weary place. And isn't that where the God of the Bible met Hagar? By a spring in a dry and weary place. Uh, this is what's going to happen when Jesus returns. And the church, the church is that we have the mission to show the world just a foretaste, because we're not perfect and our leaders are not perfect. But we have the opportunity and the mission to show the world just, just a foretaste of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. He is going to see everything and make it all right and bring healing to those who are hurting and bring justice to those who abuse. And we get to show people this is what is going to happen when Jesus comes back by letting them know, hey, God sees you. God hears you. And so do we. Now, what do you actually see? Right, this is, I think this is a vision of what we should see if the God of the Bible has changed us. But what do you actually see when you look at someone who's hurting? Do you see someone who's not your problem? As in the case with the Good Samaritan? Uh, do you see someone who deserved what they've got? Do you see someone to take advantage of? Maybe you see yourself, if, if, you're, if you're really struggling with this, maybe you see yourself as, as someone who tends to be abusive in your relationships. Um, maybe you have wanted things so badly in your life uh, that you've been willing to hurt people to get what you want. Uh, maybe you see yourself more like an enabler. Maybe that's more of your tendency. Uh, you enable. You let injustice occur because you didn't want to help or you couldn't help or you lacked the perspective to see what was really going on and so you did nothing or you didn't know what to do. I really think, honestly, most of us want to be helpful. When we see someone hurting, we want to help. 
But what, what tends to happen is, is we fall off of either side of a very narrow path in, into a ditch on the right side or the left side. Uh, sometimes, sometimes, and this is sometimes what you've been through in your life or the way you're wired, your personality, your temperament, the struggles you've gone through yourself, how you were taught and what you saw as you grew up, what you're dealing with now. Some people tend to provide accountability without providing comfort. And some people do the opposite. They provide comfort with no accountability. Providing accountability without providing comfort, this is teaching someone. This is communicating rules and, and, and communicating consequences without communicating love. This is demanding that people follow a rule and follow a structure and do things right and get it right and clean themselves up and fix things up and stop hurting you without communicating any patience and any love and any gentleness. And what I have seen in my experience in pastoral ministry and in my life is when we we veer towards that side of the spectrum, we continue the abuse. We heap on more abuse we become part of the abusive dynamic when we provide accountability with no love. On the other hand, there's providing comfort without accountability. And and this is really like, this is protecting people without coaching them. This is is protecting people and giving them handouts and bailouts and cheap love without tough love. This is telling people you love them and that things are going to be fine without ever encouraging them in a loving way that their choices and their words have consequences. And, and if this is kind of how you operate in a difficult situation, you're actually adding to the enablement. Do you see that? You're, you're further enabling them in the dynamic. Like abusers, sometimes we don't see the hurt. We refuse to see what we do to people. Uh, Or like enablers, we don't see the need. Sometimes we don't see the hurt, and sometimes we don't see the need. And ultimately, the New Testament tells us (laughs) that our vision is impaired. The pain we inflict or, or, or the pain that others inflict all around us, we're visually impaired, and actually it's a spiritual problem. It's not just a lack of education. It's not just a lack of experience. It's a spiritual problem. The Apostle Paul in Romans 3 actually talks about sight. And he says that everybody, he says this this of all the human race, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's our natural condition. We don't fear God. We don't respect and honor and worship and make God our greatest joy and God our greatest love. Just like um, Graham said earlier in the prayer of confession. Sometimes the big thing and the main thing is anything or anybody but God. And that's idolatry. And and, and really, in a sense, that's what it means to not see the way you're hurting people. And that's what it means to not see the needs of the people around you. It's to be spiritually blind. Sarai and Abram stopped looking at God. That's what led to the enablement. That's what led to the abuse. That's what led to the manipulation and the the neglect. Because this couple took their eyes off of the God who had promised to be their reward and their protector. Joyce Baldwin wrote a commentary on Genesis. and, And the way she put it is that in this moment, 
Sarai put her reasoning above her faith. I don't mean that reason is bad. We should always, always be thinking logically and reasonably. But she put her faith in her ability to figure out how she could have a child. And she forsake trusting the God who had promised one to her in the first place. So some of us, uh, some of you need to see the pain that you have caused others. Some of you, some of us need to see the pain and the hurt that we have allowed to take place right before our eyes and have neglected. You have to confess that. And with God's help, become part of the solution. If, uh, if you're here and, and you feel that you still haven't recovered from the hurts and the abuses of other people, and that in, in a way, that's all you see is your pain. I am, I am so sorry. I am deeply sorry for the hurt that you have experienced in your life. And I hope you will believe me when I say that the God, of, the God of the Bible has not overlooked you. There is someone who clearly sees. There is someone who clearly hears your cry. Even if you've never cried out to anybody, even if nothing's been audible or visual, even if, if, if the screaming is just taking place internally, there is somebody who hears and sees you. Jesus of Nazareth, this is amazing. The similarities are astounding between Hagar at the well in the, in the desert and a Samaritan woman at a well in the village of Sychar. Because the angel of the Lord came and met with this Samaritan woman in Sychar, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus walked up to a woman, uh, a woman who was lowly in status, somewhat defiant, dealing with the consequences of her lifestyle and her decisions and her actions. Nonetheless, a woman who was looked down upon and given up on by her community. She was all by herself, drawing water from a well in the middle of the day. She had a reputation. But Jesus reached out to her. And Jesus asked her a question and engaged in a conversation. And Jesus befriended her and Jesus changed her life. And what's so interesting is Jesus provided for this woman a beautiful, a beautiful balance of accountability and comfort. Because he told her her sin. He showed her, her she was trying to avoid the issue. He showed her her brokenness. But he also befriended her and loved her. And she was never the same. And through this one broken woman, an entire village was changed. John chapter 4 tells us. Check it out. Read it this week. And that, that really is what the cross is all about. It is God's accountability and God's comfort brought together in one man. And so Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is... This is, this is why Jesus can relate to you if you're not yet ready to trust the God of the Bible. I want to read to you something that Peter said about Jesus. 
He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. It says when he was threatened, he didn't retaliate. He he was like a sacrificial lamb who has no authority and no power and is just helpless, whose blood is shed on behalf of guilty sinners. And so that is why you can trust Jesus because Jesus was the greatest victim. Do you see that? Jesus became the greatest victim for you. The religious leaders, they abused him. And Pilate, the Roman authority, he was the enabler. He let it happen. He wouldn't do the right thing. And he could have. And so on the cross, God's accountability was put on Jesus. He didn't hold you accountable. He held Jesus accountable for your abuse. He held Jesus accountable for your enabling. And because of that, he is able to pour his love out on you because all the punishment, all the abuse, all the neglect, it was all placed on his son who did not retaliate. And that is why Jesus is trustworthy. And I believe that is why Hagar trusted the God of the Bible in that moment. And as you begin, as you begin to trust Jesus, things start to change. Your eyesight starts to change and how you view things, it, it changes. He gives you new eyes, eyes of faith to see things as they really are. And if you've been an abusive person or if that's your tendency, you begin to say, wow, look at how I am hurting people. Look at how I'm manipulative and overbearing and judgmental and always want to be right. Look at this. And you can now make restitution for your wrongs because Jesus has paid for them. Maybe, maybe you identify as an enabler and, and you can now say, wow, look at all the needs around me. Look at all, all the, I realize now all the needs I've failed to see and have done nothing about. And you can begin to show mercy. And you can begin to pursue justice. And defend those who need to be defended in your home. Or where you work. Or maybe right here in the church. And maybe you're a victim. And maybe all you're going to get out of what's going on here today is this. That you are not alone. You begin to see in the darkness that somebody is in the darkness with you. And to him, it's not darkness. It's light. He sees what's going on. He hears everything that's going on. There are things that people do and there are things that people say that nobody knows about. The same God who sees people who are hurting also sees the hurt and the people inflicting the hurt. God sees it all. And so you can say, you can say that the God of the Bible sees me. And in faith, we can say it to one another. The God of the Bible sees you. Jesus sees you and hears you, and so do I. Because Jesus sees you, so do I. Because Jesus sees you when you're hurting, so do we. That's who we are. We are people who see the hurt because Jesus has seen the hurt. 
And with eyes of faith, we now see what he sees when he looks at the world. And now you can say the words of Psalm 40, verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you and thank you for seeing us in our struggles. And we thank you for Jesus Christ who came to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to to proclaim recovery of sight for the blind, and to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we ask that you would give us eyes of faith to see what Jesus sees when he looks all around us. Give us faith to believe that the God of the Bible hears us and sees us. And give, give us compassion, Lord, to remind each other of this. And give us courage to announce it in our lives and in the world. Amen.